Well, I, I, I found Whitecap in October of 16. I called some friends. I said, have you ever heard of this place? They said, no. Well, it turns out, as you've heard, nobody heard of this place. I loaded my dog in my truck and we drove up here from Chicago. I pulled into the front entrance. There was no sign. I'm like, this place has to be abandoned, <laughs> you know. I saw that the lodge had construction ramp on it. It was flapping in the breeze. There was broken windows. And my dog was sitting in the front seat. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, buddy, I think we're home. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, visiting one of America's most magical and unheralded ski regions today. First, though, your reminder to visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. If you are only listening to the podcast, you're missing a lot. The pod is great, but it is just a small part of the storm. In fact, it is just a small part of the podcast. Each episode comes with an article that fills in the blanks in our conversation with maps, statistics, and all sorts of additional context. And that's just the start. I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with at least 100 articles every single year. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Whitecap, a quick word from my sponsor. Today's episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season is in full swing, which means more riders and more riders means more lift maintenance issues. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA level one requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beav.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's beav.es backslash storm. Episode 122, David Jubin, owner and general manager of Whitecap Mountains, Wisconsin. Unless you grew up there, chances are you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Midwest skiing. The vertical drops and skiable acreage are fairly small by Western or even New England standards. The lift infrastructure tends to be pretty dated. And outside of the Boyne brand name, the region's ski areas are pretty off the radar nationally. But there are two characteristics where the Midwest stacks up against anyone. The first is snowfall, especially along the Lake Superior Snowbelt, which kicks out hundreds of inches of quality dry snow each winter. The second is passion. The Midwest is one of the world's great ski cultures. I say this all the time because it's true. If you visit Snow Snake, Michigan, or Buck Hill, Minnesota, or Nordic Mountain, Wisconsin, on any given winter evening or weekend, 
you are going to find skiers as hyped to be on their local bump as anyone fighting their way up to Cottonwoods or Interstate 70 in Colorado. In fact, they may be happier since they'll leave the day with enough money left in their checking accounts to cover their mortgages, and they're just as hyped skiing on a man-made base with a few kickers as three feet of blower pow. No place in the Midwest better distills all of this than Whitecap Mountains, Wisconsin. Look, I've skied all over the place, and I have to tell you, I have never seen anything like Whitecap. It's special. It's tranquil and sprawling, but accented by some fierce terrain off the South Pole Double that will stand with anything in the Midwest. But Whitecap has struggled. The previous owners underinvested in maintenance for decades. The mountain basically has no snowmaking, and in 2019, the lodge burned to the ground. But my guest today has a vision and is almost messianic in his conviction that he can transform Whitecap into one of the Midwest's best ski areas. This is a long one, but let me tell you, you are not going to hear a conversation like this one anywhere else. Let's go. My guest today is the owner and general manager of Whitecap Mountains, Wisconsin. Whitecap Mountains is the largest and snowiest ski area in Wisconsin, averaging 200 inches of snowfall per season over its 400 skiable acres across three peaks. Prior to taking over as Whitecap general manager in 2018, he spent time at Magic Mountain, Vermont, Mount Tom, Massachusetts, and Elk Mountain, Pennsylvania. David Jubin is my guest. David, welcome to the storm. So good to catch up with you. How are you living after a powdery weekend in Wisconsin? Well, Stuart, first of all, it's great to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. And living after a powdery weekend in Wisconsin is... um, is quite interesting as we're headed into another powdery weekend that's coming. <laughs> so it has been nothing but great. You know, I looked at your snow report last night as I was prepping for this podcast. I saw that you already hit that annual average of 200 inches. We we're recording this on March 13th, 2023, for those of you who listen, who are listening after the fact. How is the outlook? I mean, wh- wh- are you done yet or is the snow train just keeping on coming? You know, um, that's a good way to put it. The snow train has not stopped at the station yet. (laughs) Um, We just got an update. Uh, Well, last night after grooming operations were finished, we probably picked up another six inches of snow on top uh, on on, on, uh, groom surfaces. So we're uh, we're pretty stoked this morning and so are the skiers that are here. And we just got a weather update looking towards the end of the week. And Thursday and Friday, we're looking at 20 plus inches right now of, uh, of what we like to call famous white cap pow. Oh, man, that, that is brilliant and a great way to finish the season. You know, snowfall, as we all know, is, is part of the story. But stepping back overall, how has the 2022 to 23 ski season gone for you at Whitecap, David? It, it, it has been since I've been here now, which just I, I, I marked five years in February, Nice. This has been our best season to date, not only in, in snowfall, but in skier visits. Uh, and, and, and obviously, you know, revenue follows that. So we're very pumped here. The staff is pumped. Um, we, we've just been having a great season. So do you set a closing date or since you have this big snowpack, are you just going to push this thing as long as you can? What's your plan? Well, we're going to, uh, you know, we were quite honestly, the last couple of weeks, we were looking at uh, ending the season on the 26th. 
And uh, based upon hotel reservations and inquiries, I think we're going to go past that, especially with these, these you know, this past storm and, and, and the one upcoming. Uh, so we'll probably go to at least the first week in April. But, we, you know, what we have to keep in mind, too, is that at some point we have to realize as good as the skiing is that we have to get on with golf operations for the summertime. And, and you know, there's the, we have a whole list of other work that we want to get done this summer, too. So. You know, I imagine a factor that plays into that, David, is, and we'll get into this a little bit, but Whitecap has really unique exposure. It's really 360 exposure, as far as I can tell. And you, so you're not one of these mountains that faces north and can really stockpile snow. So how does that play into your spring operations? What, what do you lose first? And, and you know, because the mountain is interconnected in such a unique way, I have to imagine there comes a point when, even though you got a lot of snow on one angle, you really just can't get between the mountains anymore. Yeah, there is, you know, we, we, we ski the west, north, and south sides of the resort. The, the, the first uh, and most obvious place we lose snow is on the south side, which is, you know, which is is, is where our double blacks uh, runs are. And, and, and that's what Whitecap is, is somewhat famous for is our leg, what we like to call our legendary south side. We'll start losing snow there first, which, you know... And, and after that, we'll start losing snow up on the golf course. The north side of the resort will hold snow quite late. There was still, there's been patches of snow on the north side up until uh, late May anyway. Wow. And I'm sure this year that we're going to go past that, that time frame uh, just because of the snowpack right now. All right. So you're, you're dealing, you have a really cool Wisconsin weather pattern and uh, so you've settled into that over the last five years, and you had, as I mentioned in the intro, a long career in New England. Where did you grow up, David? You a New England guy, Midwest guy? What, what's your What's your background, and where did you grow up skiing? If you grew up skiing, yeah, you know, I I I, I was born and raised in Elmhurst, Illinois, which is you know a western suburb of Chicago. Um, went through my whole childhood there, you know, grade school, high school, uh, was didn't take up skiing until I was in high school. So that was in, um, mid, mid seventies. I took up skiing and, um, I, I caught the bug and, um, you know, nobody else in my family, one of my brothers skied a, a little bit, but, um, I caught the bug and it, and it never left. Who dragged you out there? Was it a buddy? Did you, was there a ski club at school? What got you on the hill for the first time? A uh, buddy of mine, uh, we decided one day to be, you know, he, he had skied, and, uh, you know, he was telling me about it and I said, well, you know, I'd like to give that a whirl. So, uh, one Saturday morning we climbed in a car and we drove up to Wilmot and, and, uh, that was my first skiing experience was at Wilmot, Wisconsin. I mean, that's the Midwest story, right? Because the Hills are right there. Yeah. They're smaller, but they're so accessible and they're so affordable and they're so, there's such an easy learning curve to them. So, I mean, just talk about the Midwest, being a guy who has lived and run ski areas elsewhere. What's unique about this Midwest ski culture that just makes it this place that just churns out skiers? Yeah, you know, well, there, there, there's a large population, obviously, of skiers close to a lot of Midwest ski areas. And I think it's the proximity and it's the convenience for people to get out and uh, and try skiing and a lot of people, and I'm sure you've met a lot of them, you know, you, you start skiing and you get that bug and, and you become a lifelong skier or a lifelong snowboarder. Um, but there's a lot of choices in close proximity to the urban areas. 
And, 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 uh, you know, I think that contributes greatly. And then you have, you know, the, the bigger Midwest resorts. And, and I think that's just a natural step after people, you know, are visiting the smaller areas and they want to go somewhere before going out West or going out East. I think they visit these Midwest destination resorts and, and that's where Whitecap fits in. So Wilmot is an interesting one. The last day I had on my podcast, Dave Scanlon, who now runs Eagle Crest out in Alaska, he also grew up skiing Wilmot. That was his first hill that he started hitting as a teenager. What was Wilmot like when you were skiing there? Obviously now it's owned by Vail Resorts and it's a different kind of thing, but but what are your memories of Wilmot when your early ski days? I, you know, I remember Wilmot as being just a nightmare crowd-wise. Right. I mean, you know, you went out there and you stood in the lift line. I could remember standing in lift lines for 20 and 30 minutes wow. to make that grand two minute run down the hill. And then <laughs> and then you're back in line. And and I could remember, you know, back in high school yelling single and and, you know, you went there to see the girls, too. Um, and and it was just a very it, it was a very busy place. It was kind of old school. And, and I just remember the crowds were just were just absolutely absurd at that place. So you get your reps in at Wilmot, you catch the bug. When did you start working in skiing? What was your first job? Well, um, I'm going to back up on that a little bit because I want to tell you a quick Wilmot story. But I caught <laughs> I caught the ski industry bug standing in the lift line at Wilmot. The people in front of me asked the lifty what, what the best thing was about working at a ski resort. And, you know, I was in high school. I didn't know what I was going to mm-hmm. do with my life. I mean, my family had plans for me and I had other plans, but the lifty said the best, the best thing about working at a ski resort was you got to ski for free. And <clears throat> that single sentence, pardon me, changed my life. Um, And that's why I am where I am today. So, after a little bit, I, I decided to look for a job working at a ski resort, and I found an ad in a paper uh, for Plumtree Ski Area, which is uh, just south of Freeport, Illinois. It's about 40 minutes west of Rockford, Illinois, and uh, they were looking for help in the resort. So I hadn't worked in the resort. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I took a ride up there. I saw their snowmaking equipment out there. They had three old head codes that were powered by Volkswagen engines. I think they were H2Ds. And I took the information down off the machines and I called the factory out in New Jersey and asked for a, <laughs> an operator's manual. And this was, this was pre-internet, so they had right. it in the mail. I read the operator's manual. I called Plumtree. I lined up an interview. They asked if I had any experience, and I said, oh, yeah, I know all about head coach snowmaking equipment, and they said, well, that's what we have. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. <laughs> so I was hired as a snowmaker. <laughs> I mean, that is just unbelievable. So so you, you order this manual from New Jersey. Yep. You get up there to Plumtree. What happened when you got on the hill? Were you like – Wow, this is real? Were you able to figure it out? How did that go? Yeah, well, I was lucky that uh, the guy who was the quote-unquote hill manager at the time, his his first name was Eric. I don't remember his last name. And he had a couple of us out there and to train us. And, mm-hmm. you know, he made a couple comments that he knew I had experience. And I said, well, I don't want that to uh, to, to 
to look bad with the others. So just <laughs> go ahead and do your thing, you know. Oh my God, and it was, uh, and it was quite the experience. And I, I think that first day I worked twenty hours. I mean, right, right from the moment I stepped out of my car, I had the bug, and I wanted to be a snowmaker. And and uh, I worked twenty hours that night, and then um, the next day I came back, and um, he said his groomer operator, which their groomer at the time was a thigh call sprite with a roller behind it, was sick, and he said, "You have any experience, you know, running one of the?" I said, "Oh yeah, I can do that." And, you know, <laughs> I crawled in that thing, and I uh, I worked all night making snow and running that that old thigh call sprite. Um, oh so that was my, uh, that was my gateway into the ski industry. <laughs> How did you figure out the groomer? Did you have experience running a tractor on family land or something? What, did you have any kind of experience to apply to that? Or did you just start pushing levers and hope it worked? Yeah, I, I got in there and I looked at it and I thought, well, it was an automatic transmission. So that was a good thing. And then, it, you <laughs> okay. know, you had the two sticks between your knees and I'm like, well, one is left and one is right. And, and off <laughs> we go. <laughs> you know? And they thought I did a great job. <laughs> it was it was um it was unbelievable um and i think that first week i i think i worked like 70 or 80 hours that first week wow and and i i loved it and um you know there was you know and then 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 due to circumstances at Plumtree that led me to do other things there which which started off my whole career so tell us about Plumtree, David. This is not a ski area that most folks are familiar with. I'm, I'm not actually sure if it's even still in business. I know there are still four ski areas in business in Illinois, but tell us about Plumtree, what it was like, and what you learned there. Well, you know, Plumtree was part of uh, Lake Carroll development. They had a 640-acre lake, which it's my understanding that when they were building the lake, um, they 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 excavated out some bays and whatnot and and they used this fill to build the ski hill and it was it was you know they claimed it was 200 feet of vertical and that was pushing it a little bit but you know it's here in the midwest there was no trees on the on the hill um and it was it was a you know it was it was just a little place we catered to groups out of freeport and rockford uh school groups we had a we had actually a very nice base lodge with a nice dining facility and a, a small rental shop in the basement and and a walkout uh, walkout area that that had a cafeteria. We had an outdoor outdoor pool. Um, we had a little maintenance building, and uh, you know it was just the kind of place that so many people get a start at, in, not only in skiing but you know in their careers also. So working at Plumtree, how long were you there, David? And where did you go next? <laughs> I uh, I was there, I think, maybe four years. And after after my first season, there was a lot of nonsense going on there. There was a lot of theft and 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 mm. things. And I pointed that out to the to the individuals who hired me. There was actually a seen as though this was a private, like somewhat of a gated community. And, and uh, it, the ski area was open to the public. There was a ski hill committee that actually interviewed me and hired me. And hopefully they hear this and realize what kind of mistake they made. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, so I went to them and I said, hey, there's some nonsense going on you guys need to be aware of. So they got rid of the guy who actually trained me to be a snowmaker, mm. although he didn't know it at the time. Okay. Um, 
And, and they asked what improvements, you know, I thought should be made. And I put together a capital improvement program for them, which included rebuilding. They had a, they had a double chairlift and a, uh, a T-bar. Mm-hmm. So I put together a capital improvement program, which included rebuilding um, the, the chairlift, just doing a lot of maintenance work on it. I shouldn't say rebuilding, uh, purchasing a new grooming tractor and some new snowmaking equipment. So they uh, they they gave me a budget of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And I got a hold of Hugh Knapp at the time, who was you know in the resort equipment business and introduced myself. And, and he had heard of Plumtree. And I went out east, and um, first time I ever flew on a big commercial jet was going out east. And uh, I went to uh, Jiminy Peak, Catamount, and I can't remember the other areas. And I, I bought a Tucker Snowcat. Um, I bought uh, some grooming equipment, um, and I bought some from Catamount. I bought a, uh, some, some snow, uh, SMI Snowstream 320s. I, I think I bought four of them. Mm-hmm. And came back and, and I made, you know, while I was out there, I spent a week out there and I got to see other other resorts and, and I was just like salivating and, and I thought, no, I'm in a good place. And I got back to Plumtree and, you know, after seeing Jiminy Peak and Catamount and some of the other places and Killington and that, I got back to Plumtree and I'm like, man, this is like an anthill. I got to get out of here. <laughs> was it winter? Were you able to ski them? Uh, no, no, it was in the summertime. Uh, but you know, I, I, I got, uh, Brian Fairbanks was really cool at Jiminy Peak and I got a tour of the resort back then. And, mm. and, uh, at Catamount, um, I think the, the owner's name at the time was Bill. I can't remember his last name, but they, they were all very nice. So, so after I got back to Plumtree and, and all of a sudden, you know, my, my ski industry dreams shrunk as I pulled in the parking lot of Plumtree because the place was so little. <laughs> Um, I decided I was going to go ahead and, and, and spend another year or so there. And then I was going to go seek employment elsewhere. Well, I, I couldn't wait the year and I put together resumes. I mailed out, I don't know, four dozen resumes out East because I had contacts out there and I got responses back from a lot of the resorts. And I, uh, I planned a trip and I went out and interviewed with, uh, with Killington with Stowe, uh, Pico, Bromley, I, just a, a bunch of places. And I, I was heading towards taking a position at Killington. And then, of course, um, my life took a change, and, and I happened upon the access road to Magic Mountain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's what I did. All right, so tell us about Magic Mountain, and and if you, I, I don't want to age you here, David, but Magic's had a really interesting history, a lot of ups and downs. So if you could anchor this in a decade, I think that would help folks understand the Magic Mountain that you were dealing with, the version of Magic Mountain you were dealing with. Well, it was uh, it would have been the early '80s. I was out there, and and like I said, I was going to accept the position at Killington. And I stayed, I, I, I happened upon the access road to Magic. I, I was driving by and I saw the sign. I'm like, well, I want to go see this place. I drove up the access road and all I saw was, now the area had been closed, I think, for three or four years from, from the Hans Thorner days. Okay. And uh, I drove up the access road and I basically saw 1,700 vertical feet of mud. <laughs> and I said, I want to be here. <laughs> so I, uh, I drove up to what's called uh, Dostal's Motor Lodge, which was the first 
hotel right at the base of the mountain, mm-hmm. uh, at the at the Magic Mountain base area. And I went one inside, and Trudy Dostal was the owner, and and she said, you know, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'd like to get a room. And she said, what are you doing out here? You're from Illinois, and I said, I'm looking for a job at a ski hill, you know, and. She said, do you have any experience? I said, sure. You know, and I went on about Plumtree a little bit. And she said, well, I'm a new shareholder in the new company that's taken over Magic. And I can get you an interview hmm. with the general manager in the morning. I said, is there any way you can do it this afternoon? Because I have to give an answer to Killington in the morning. <laughs> so she she called up there and I was introduced to Simon Warren, who headed up a group out of New York. And... Um, and I got an interview with him, which led me to uh, speaking with Jim Schultz, Schultzy, um, and and uh, I called Killington back the next day and said I wasn't going to accept the position. I, I accepted a position at Magic Mountain, and wow. I think I heard the phone drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what was that, David? What appealed to you? Because Killington is Killington, beast yep. of the east. You know, busiest ski area on the East Coast, most famous ski area on the East Coast. Magic is uh, a great ski area, but it's it's had its troubles, and it sounds like it was going through one of those periods when you were there. Why were you drawn to the place that was a little more beat up, that had a little bit higher mountain to climb? No pun intended. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think it was that I I saw possibility there. And, and I'll be a little bit selfish and say that I saw that I could be a, you know, at Killington, I would have been a little wheel, I guess, in a big machine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and at Magic, I saw the, especially after the interview process, I saw that I could play, I could be a bigger wheel, so to speak, in, in, a, in a smaller machine than Killington. And that appealed to me because I... I just didn't want to be a snowmaker or a groomer. You know, I, I, even back then I had, I had visions of owning a resort, uh, even after the little plum tree experience. And, uh, so that, that's, that's what led me there. And, and just knowing that the group that was in there was brand new, they were trying to get open by that, that season. I was out there in, I think I was out there in May, I think is when I interviewed and and I know that there was a big crunch to get open. They had a lot of work to do. They had that old Jan chairlift out in front that that they said they were going to rebuild and that they were going to they were going to put in another lift. Um, and and there was a lot of plans that first year. And it was it was exciting to know that here's a place that had been closed. And and I remember Schultze took me up to give me a tour of the mountain and. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know him at all, but he's quite the Mm-mm, car. No. Um, so he's going to give me a tour of the mountain and we get on a front end loader. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, here, he says, I'll drive. He said, you just stand on the stairs. I said, where are we going? He said, I'll take you up the mountain. I said, we're going up the mountain in this thing. <laughs> and then again, it was one of those aha moments that I'm going to make sure I get a job offer from this place. <laughs> and, uh, and, and two weeks later, I, um, I had uh, loaded up my snowmobile into my pickup and my personal belongings, and uh, I was living in a dorm room at Magic Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to Magic Mountain in a day when the the mountain had a lot of energy. You know, yeah. it, that was the '80s was when Timberside came online, and they yeah. they combined that old ski area on Glee Mountain to make it 
one big ski area, you know, hosted Chris Blomback, the longtime general manager yep. of Pat's Peak. And from, from what you've told me, a friend of yours on yep. the podcast last year, and, and he went into great detail about Magic in that era. But I'd love to hear from your point of view, David. Tell us about Magic Mountain and how long you were there and how that went and, and what the ski area was like in those days. You know, it was it was it was kind of like the I, I, I guess I could say it was kind of like the Wild West. I mean, it was kind of like the Wild West from management on down. I mean, we were it was a shoot from the hip kind of place at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there was uh, not taking anything away from Simon Orn and, and, and that group. But I don't think there was a lot of a lot of planning, future planning. I think it was handling every day as it comes because there was things coming up all the time. And and I remember he was always trying to cut deals for things and groomers and, and all that kind of stuff. But that was it was exciting just being part of that instead of walking into a place that's very well run, like I did later in my career. I mean, they were all exciting, but just going to a place like that, that needed, that had been closed, it needed a lot of work. It was all get down in the mud and 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 let's do this together. And we did. We all worked as a group for one for one cause, and that was to get the place open and, and bring it back to life. And I I remember I, you know, all the people I met out there, the guys who I worked with, I I bring them up on a continual basis to to employees here about how we all work together. And we all came from different walks of life. I came from the Midwest. I know Schultz and Chris were from out east. Chris went to college in Vermont. And, you know, he was the more educated out of all of us. You know? <laughs> and I just kind of weaseled my way into the industry, you know. Uh, and, and, and Schultz was a shoot from the hip kind of guy. Um, and then there was Christian Swenson who worked in the lift department and he was educated at MIT. So he had an engineering background, which kind of got to be a pain after a while. And, <laughs> and Butch Rawlings was in charge of the lift maintenance. And he was a local guy who grew up skiing at, at magic and slim was our head groomer. And he taught me about running the big, the big grooming tractors and, and everybody worked together for a common cause. There was none of this. We're the lift department. You're the snowmakers. I mean, we did what we all did what we had to do for the most part without being asked. I mean, we all bucked down and, and got the job done. So it sounds like a great team. And what were you able to get done? You know, that, that first year um, when I was there, I, I, I got out there in June. Um, we built we built the lift uh, to Mid-Mountain. We, we cut a new trail. We built a new lift. Uh, we did a lot of additions to the snowmaking infrastructure. Um, they retrofit that Yan chair that was out in front. I think it was called the black chair at the time. Yeah. Um, we installed, uh, we did, you know, a lot of snowmaking upgrades to the pump house. Um, we, you know, they got some new, new, I'll say new to them grooming equipment. Uh, the lodge um, underwent renovations. It was just, it, it was it was a very, very exciting place to be. And, you know, we got to meet a lot of the skiers who were, and, and, and it's still to a point, you know, it was a real cult-like thing back then with the skiers. And, and, and it still is to that point from what I see on, on social media and that, but it was just a, it was a great, exciting time to be there. Were you there when they did the Timberside connection? We, I was, I actually, um, 
I actually walked those trails with uh, Cliffy and Schultze, mm. and we marked them out. And I was um, I, I ran equipment there, uh, clearing those trails. And, uh, you know, I, I went up every day with the, the drilling crew with the air tracks. And, and uh, yeah, I was there. I was there for that whole deal. So how long were you at Magic? And ultimately, why did you leave and where did you go? I was there for, I think it was four years altogether three or four years, I think. And it got to the point that I, uh, you know, I started to see cracks in, in the management, um, I guess, and things were really getting tight. And I thought that, you know, um, I, I wanted to do more with my career. And so I, um, I talked to Hugh Knapp and Hugh introduced me to, uh, to the guys at Mount Tom and, uh, I went down for an interview at Mount Tom and, uh, you know, I was ultimately uh, offered a job there. And uh, so, so I made the move. So Mount Tom is a very special Massachusetts ski area for a lot of folks in New England who remember that area very fondly. Mm-hmm. It is a lost ski area now. And I had a long conversation with Jeremy Clark, who runs a website called NewEnglandSkiHistory.com. It's a terrific yeah. website. And he took us through the whole Mount Tom story. However, I would love to hear about Mount Tom from someone who worked there and lived it. I never skied there. The place was closed right around the time I moved east in 2002, actually maybe late 90s. But tell us about Mount, Mount Tom. What was the culture like there? What was the vibe like there? What was it like to work there? It was, uh, you know, Mount Tom was located in Central Mass. Um, I think it was 20 minutes from Springfield, Mass, which is a pretty big metropolitan area outside of Boston. Um, and it was located in Holyoke, uh, Massachusetts. Um, it was, uh, you know, 700 feet of vertical. Um, and I, um, you know, we, we used to do, well, we skied at night there too. Um, so night business was great. It was, it was kind of a drop off place on Saturdays and Sundays for, for kids. The parents would drop the kids off. Um, that was, you know, and, and Mount Tom was owned by, um, uh, O'Connell construction out of, uh, I think they were based out of Holyoke. I know they had an office in Boston and it was, it was quite different than, than magic mountain in that it was, it was very busy. Uh, but it was, it was, uh, they were, they weren't looking for any changes. You know, we had, uh, <laughs> we had homemade snowmaking guns. They were made out of three quarter inch okay. pipe okay. and, uh, we had three quarter inch air and water hoses to them. And I mean, we had, we never brought guns in to a maintenance facility because there was so many of them. They always stayed out next to the hydrants on the line. (laughs) That was, I mean, that was, you know, and the, the, the guns were on a base of uh, three pieces of angle iron that were welded in a tripod Um, and, and they would forever tip over and spin around (laughs) and, you know, yeah, it was, and, and the, uh, we had a, we had a local farmer who was our head groomer, Bob, and and he would he didn't want to groom at night, so he came to work and groomed. He started grooming at eight o'clock in the morning. The lifts okay. opened up at nine, and he would continually chase people around the hill, kind of like kind of like what happened here before I got here. <laughs> so it was it was I didn't know it at the time was a harbinger of things to come in my career. Um, and they Mount Tom just wanted to stay status quo. We uh, we we developed. A great, and I say we, just not me, but in conjunction with other people who worked there, we had a great marketing person. 
and she developed a lot of the summer business. We had, you know, we had a, a wave pool in a small, I guess you would call it a water park now, very small water park, a couple of slides and a pool. And um, the big advertising thing back then was that we had the smallest wave pool in all of New England and it was small. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we developed a summer business. We, we had a lot of uh, event tents on the property and we used to cater to local local businesses and industries, they would have company picnics, family weddings, family outings. So that was a great thing for the summertime in conjunction with the quote unquote water park. But, you know, the thing about Mount Tom was they, they, they wanted to stay the way they were. There really wasn't any room for expansion. I tried doing some upgrades on the snowmaking system just to show it could operate more efficiently. And, and I, uh, you know, that, that was met with, with some, um, with some, uh, oh, I can't think of the word I want to use. Resistance. With some stubbornness, I guess you want to say. Yeah. And, you know, after a few years of, of you know, I, I, was, I was given a good story about how they wanted to improve the place. And I'll never forget that they had a rent, an artist rendering of the new base lodge that was to be built. And it was my mistake, but I did not discover until after I accepted the job there and started working that that picture had been hanging on the wall for 15 years. Oh my gosh. So I figured then that, well, you know, the new lodge isn't coming anytime soon. Um, and, and that was fine. I mean, <clears throat> I learned a lot at Mount Tom. It was good experience. Um, I've, I've, you know, I still have some friends from back in those days and, you know, it was it was basically ended up being a stepping stone, but it, it was a great place at the time. It was the right place for me to be, and it was going to lead to other things. So from Mount Tom, you end up at Elk Mountain, Pennsylvania, and Elk, for those who aren't familiar, it gets a little overlooked, but it is, in my opinion and the opinion of many, the best run and best ski mountain in Pennsylvania, just from a terrain point of view. When did you arrive at Elk? and just tell us about Elk for those who might be not be familiar with it. And what was it like to come into a place that was that well run after working at a couple places that were kind of really trying to figure it out from a different, couple different angles? Yep. Yeah. And I, I will agree with your statement about Elk. Um, absolutely well run, absolute great skiing, absolutely fantastic management. When I got there, um, I, I was at a uh, auction, a ski area auction in New Jersey to buy some Alpine slides from Mount Tom. We had Alpine, we had two Alpine slides there, and, and mm-hmm. I was there to buy the slides for parts. Guy walked up to me and asked if I was David from Mount Tom, and I said, "Yeah, I'm David Jubin. I'm not Dave Moore. I just wanted <laughs> that to be clear." And um, and Dave Moore was a general manager who hired me at Mount Tom, and and uh, I met. The guy that introduced himself was Greg Confer from mm-hmm. Elk, and he said he had talked to Hugh Knapp, and and you know Hugh had uh, let him know that I was you know un, unhappy at Mount Tom at the time, and I was looking for more. And Greg said they're looking for a mountain manager, and I said you know I said ah Pennsylvania, I didn't know much about it, and I'm like yeah yeah I was thinking coal mines and you know <laughs> company towns and things like that, and he said no, nah. he said you know just come down for a weekend and and we'll put you up in a hotel and you could take a look at the area. And uh, so I thought, well, I got nothing better to do, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) I thought I'd get a free room out of the deal. That'd be kind of cool. I'd never been there before. So I went down there and I, uh, I interviewed with Greg on a Saturday 
I stayed over in Clark Summit um, Saturday night. And Sunday, uh, the owner of Elk came up and uh, did a second interview with me. And ultimately, uh, they offered me a position. And uh, I could not get away from Mount Tom fast enough. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you talk about going to Mount or to, to, to Elk from Mount Tom and Magic, uh, culture shock is not even the way to start that conversation. <laughs> I mean, it was night and day doesn't even sound right. Um, it was it was very exciting. It was very well run, as it still is. Um, I was given a lot of freedom. Um, there was it was a great learning curve for me because I had a hard time adjusting to. I guess it was me adjusting to them and them adjusting to me because I was brought in from the outside, and there was a little bit of of, of concern on the staff that was there that they thought somebody from within should have been promoted to this position, and and I did not. There was instances where I did not handle things properly, but but Greg was Greg w- was really good, and he said, you know, he said you should take a step back, and you know, he gave me some guidance, and and I was, and I'll be honest, I was kind of cocky at the time when I went there because here I am coming to this great place, and you know, I'm going to be the mountain manager, and you know, all of this and that, and but um, ultimately, I I overcame all of that, and and. Got along great with the staff. Um, very well run place. Absolutely. Always concerned about the future. Always concerned about the guest. Always concerned about the bottom line. Always willing to reinvest into the into the facility. And there's a lot of things that I learned there, not only from just being at Elk in general, but from Greg that I, I still carry with me to this day. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, Greg, by the way, not telling you anything you don't know, but for the listeners, is still the general manager at Elk and has been since sometime in the 1980s. Talk about Greg as a leader and what you learned from him and how that informed your leadership style to this day. Yeah, it. you know, he's uh, Greg was very laid back, but I will I will I guess I'll take a quote from one of our great presidents, walk softly and carry a big stick. And that's the way that he ran that place. And he was not overbearing. He gave you, he gave you room to work, you know, and make decisions. But at the same time, you know, he, he never, he never thought twice about yanking me by the collar, you know, and just saying, Hey, um, but you're right. He's been there since the late eighties. I mean, and how rare is that other than, you know, Cliffy there at Pat's Peak. I mean, he's been there for a long time too. Um, but I learned a lot from Greg's style and, and I try and keep some of that with me every day. Um, you know, from what I, from what I learned from him, but he, he gave people room to grow. They offered opportunity to grow. Um, but he ran a and he still does run a very, very tight ship. And and I'm very proud to say that I worked there and worked for him. So Elk was your last stop in skiing for a while. So ultimately, why did you leave Elk, David? And what did you do next? And then what brought you back to skiing? Well, in 1991 at Elk, we were um, working on a chairlift, getting ready to splice a cable. 
Uh, Dale Walters was going to come in the next day and, and, and do the splice. We had taken a day with our staff at Elk and we had uh, rigged the cable, you know, in preparation for the splicing procedure. And uh, I'll never forget, my, my parents came out to visit from Illinois. Uh, I was dating a girl from Philadelphia at the time and she was up there. And then the guy who was my, my right-hand guy at Mount Tom, his name is, his name is Mark, he was there because he, he had never been through a splice before. And we did the rigging in the morning. Everybody had lunch. I had lunch with my family, my girlfriend, and my buddy Mark. And I, I told Tony, who was in charge of lift personnel, I said, let's go take one last look at this thing and make sure everything's good for Dale in the morning. And we drove out to the lift, and uh, I was standing right next to the haul rope. It was rigged. It was, you know, on the ground. And, and I turned to Tony, and I said, man, if this thing ever let loose, it, it it's going to make a big racket. And at that moment, mm. the cement blocks under the counterweight imploded and snatched up that cable and put a fist clamp through my right leg, damaged my knee, damaged my hips, broke a couple ribs on my right side, cracked my sternum, broke my collarbone, uh, hit me in the nose and then hit me ultimately in the forehead. And, and when those blocks broke, that cable snatched up from the ground and, and it was like an elastic band. It was going from the ground to just a few feet in the air. And I was caught on the fist clamps. They buried themselves in my Carhartt jacket. Oh my God. And, yeah. And I remember, um, for some reason, I remember my radio flying off my belt and, and Tony grabbed my radio cause we had the Lackawanna County emergency services channel on our radios at the time. And, and, and they called, I remember hearing Tony call the office and needing emergency assistance. And I got tossed off the cable and I landed face down on the mountain. And I thought, my first thought was, oh my God, my parents had just left. My girlfriend had just left. And uh, my buddy, Mark, actually, he was going to stay, but he had to leave. And I, I thought, I saw everybody I care about and this is it. I'm, I'm just going to die here. And I had the wind knocked out of me and I'm laying there face down and, and I couldn't say anything cause I'm trying to get my breath and Bill bless his heart. He's, he's dead now, but he was our groomer at the head groomer. And, and he came over and I finally caught my breath and they're all asking me if I'm okay. I'm okay. And I said, just tell me my legs are there because I thought from the cable, I, I would have lost one of my legs and I was yeah. concerned about that. And, and Bill and his, you know, <laughs> native Pennsylvania, he says, well, Davey, he said, uh, your legs are there, but your toes are pointed the wrong way in your boots. <laughs> well, I got yanked out of my boots and somehow they stayed on my feet, but they got twisted around backwards. <laughs> oh, I'm laying on my stomach and my toes are pointed up to the sky. So, oh my God. So I, I turned over and, uh, I remember Greg coming up there and, um, and some of the other staff and then they, you know, the paramedics, I guess they were called paramedics at the time. They, they showed up and, and they, they shuttled them up there. Then I went off to the Scranton hospital and I spent a couple days in intensive care. And, um, you know, I came out of there in a cast and all kinds of stuff. And, and I, one of the guys came and picked me up and took me home. I was living in Clark summit at the time, which was about a half hour South of, of Elk. And, uh, I, the first day, at home, I, um, I, I got in my truck and, and, and I drove up to the mountain to go to work. 
And, and I just, I had a hard time. The pain was just too bad. And, and I talked to my folks and, uh, my dad says, you know, get on a plane, we'll pick you up at the airport and you're going to have to rehab for a long time. So I came back to Illinois. Um, and I had decided that I had, I had too many close call accidents and maybe this was someone telling me that I should do something different with my life. So I, I went through rehab in Illinois. I, I went back out east and, and, and I met with Greg and I said, I, I just, I'm, I'm done. I, I gave my notice. I packed up my house and I came back to Illinois. And, um, and, and, and that was it. Then I continued on to do other things with my life. Where did you, where did you go? And did you miss working in skiing? Yeah, I went, you know, my folks were living out in Dixon, Illinois at the time, which is about a hundred miles west of Chicago. And, um, I went there, uh, cause I, I, I had to be somewhere where there was somebody around to help me, uh, cause I could not maneuver very well. And, uh, so I went back and, um, I, I went through rehab and I'm thinking, you know, what am I going to do with my life now? And a buddy of mine contacted me. He heard I was back in Illinois. And as a matter of fact, he used to be in, he used to be the, uh, he was at Plumtree. He was in charge of the homeowners association at Plumtree. And I became good friends with him, Ken Alexander. And he called me and he was involved in, st- in, in starting a brokerage house in Springfield, Illinois to sell stocks and investments. And he said, you know, why don't you come to work for me? You need to do something. You can't sit around. And I had dabbled in investments a little bit and, and I thought, okay, so I gave it a try and I ended up, I ended up working for him for 10 or 11 years. And, uh, you know, I got, I got, I mean, it was a good life. I, um, you know, I was going to work every day in expensive suits, driving a German car and, and kind of living, living well. I had a boat on Lake Michigan. I would spend a couple days a week on and, and life was good. Um, and, but the ski industry always, always, always nagged at me. I mean, I think I told you when you were here that, you know, the, I tell people that, you know, that the snowmaking thing got under my nails and it's never left. And it's always been part of me, which obviously translated into, into a career. And, you know, it always nagged at me. And, and, uh, and then I, um, in 2000, I, uh, I met my wife. I was, uh, I was in Naperville, Illinois. I was at a Barnes and Noble. Okay. And, um, I was sitting there reading the Sun-Times paper, having a cup of coffee. And uh, this woman walked by, and, and I, I don't make any bones about it. I, at the time, there was, the Internet was very, very new at the time. And, and, and in, the, in the newspapers, you used to have these personal pages where, you know, people tried finding dates or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the personals page open. I'm just paging through the sometimes, drinking my coffee. And this woman walked by, and she, and she backed up, and she said, uh, "She said, is that is that today sometimes?" And I said, "Yeah." And she says, "Can I see it for a second? I said, "Sure." And I'm like, well, who, "Who is this whack job?" You know, I didn't know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she was this little blonde woman, and and she 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 folded the paper back. The sometimes read like a book. It wasn't mm-hmm. your standard newspaper fold, and. Uh, and, and she put the paper down and, and she pointed at an ad. She said, that's my ad there. And I, I read it and I'm like, well, okay, well, since you're standing here, can I get you a cup of coffee? And she said, sure. 
And I didn't know it at the time, but that was my future wife. Amazing. Yeah, and we went out a couple days later. We had a first date at a Italian restaurant in Downers Grove, Illinois, called Clara's. And I, I walked in there and I met her there, and she didn't want me to know where she lived yet, you know, because uh-huh. I could be a weird one, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we sat down, and and I think uh, I ordered a soda, and she had a glass of wine, and we were talking, and and I, you know, I I kind of joke quite a bit. And, and, and that's from my grandpa. You know, he told me once that if you can't laugh every day, you might as well just lay down and die. And I carry that with me and every day and I try and instill that in my employees and whatnot. But so I told Kathleen, I said, uh, you know, she said, well, tell me about your family. I said, well, I got to get this out in the open right away. I said, not, I don't want this to sound bad, but I just want you to know that my parents are a mixed race marriage mm-hmm. and, okay. and they're not, but I told okay. her. See, okay. So she said, okay, that's, that's not an issue. And I said, okay. So we talked a little more and, and I had to get up and use the restroom. And, and, uh, I came back to the table and she's talking on my cell phone. Okay. She, she took my cell phone out of my jacket and I <laughs> said, she said, your mother would like to talk to you. Your mother is not African-American. I'm like, Oh crap. So <laughs> my mom says, I get on the phone and I said, are you really on the phone? And she says, yeah. She said, she's a keeper. Bring her out here to meet us. So I hung up the phone and I turned to Kathleen. I said, how did you know to call my parents? She says, every good Italian boy has her mother on speed dial. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I ended up a year later getting married. And um, and uh, I, I my wife knew that I was unhappy in in working at the brokerage house. And and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'd really like to go working back outside. And she knew about my history in the ski business. So I I decided I was going to start a landscape company. And the plan was, hey, you know what? I'm going to get a couple mowers. I'm going to hire one or two Hispanics. We're going to mow for three days a week. And I'm going to go spend the other four days a week on my boat up on the lake, Mm -hmm. on Lake Michigan. And and little did I know that the uh, the landscape business took off like a rocket ship, and I spent I don't know ten years ten years doing that something like that, and uh, I I went home one day and you know we we went through the recession in two thousand and eight and that really beat me up financially and mentally and and it caused a break in my marriage at the time, uh, never got divorced. My wife and I um, continued to work on things. And we were headed in the right direction, but um, uh, you know, I, I one day she told me she said you're, you're not happy again, and I said, I'm not. I said I, I lost my fervor for the landscape business. I, I don't know what I want to do. I was, I felt like a fish in a boat flopping around, you know. And she said, you, you got to find a resort. She said you got to go back to skiing. And after my accident at Elk, I, I gave up. I, I did not go skiing whatsoever. I quite honestly, I was really? afraid. I was, I was afraid to get on a chairlift, you know? Mm. And, um, she said, go find a resort. So I went home, looked on the internet <laughs> and lo and behold, <laughs> White Camp Mountains comes up. <laughs> I was a kid. I got to spend my summers at our family house, not too far from here. And when I learned how to drive, we would come up in the wintertime. When I learned how to drive, I would go skiing at Mount Telemark or Powderhorn. Never knew this place was here. And um, 
you know, she, I, I told her about it. I said, I don't know, this place looks, I don't even know if it's open from the pictures. And, you know, she said, well, you got to find out about it. And that that's that's what I did between elk and white camp. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a lifetime. And, you know, skiing obviously has has been the backdrop of your life. So you, you find an opportunity to get back in. You drive up to white cap. What do you find when you get there? What's your first impression? Oh, man, talk about culture shock. <laughs> it went the other <laughs> way. Well, I, I, I found Whitecap in October of 16. I called some friends. I said, have you ever heard of this place? They said, no. Well, it turns out, as you've heard, nobody heard of this place. <laughs> so I, I set about doing some due diligence. I gathered as much information as I could. I made my, so that was October of 16. I made my first visit here a Christmas weekend uh, well, I, it was, it was the weekend of Christmas week. That Saturday I arrived at Elk at nine o'clock in the morning. I, I loaded my dog in my truck and we drove up here from, from Chicago. I pulled in to the front entrance. There was no sign. I pulled in, the snow was blowing. I'm like, this place has to be abandoned. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I saw that the lodge had construction wrap on it. It was flapping in the breeze. There was broken windows. There was just a little narrow path plowed to get to the parking lot. The parking lot was only plowed for about 20 cars. I went inside and I was to meet the realtors here and I introduced myself and they had, I asked the ticket window, how many tickets have you sold today? And they said, well, we sold five. And I said, how many people are in the hotel? They had three rooms and they were ecstatic about that. Wow. They were absolutely ecstatic about that. But I walked into the building. Well, first of all, when I pulled into the parking lot, I stopped. I, I stopped dead in my tracks out, out where our big sign is now. And my dog was sitting in the front seat. He's a golden retriever. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, buddy, I think we're home. <laughs> the, whole, the whole Magic Mountain experience came flooding back to me at that moment. <laughs> And I'm like, this is it. I picked up my phone. I called my wife and she said, are you there? I said, I am. She says, what do you think? I said, this is it. She said, you saw the whole place already? I says, no, I didn't even get all the way through the parking lot yet. So, so what went, was it, David? I mean, I, I mean, it, you know, it sounds like the place was, I don't want to say in ruins, but but it sounded like it was pretty run down. What called to you about Whitecap in that moment? I don't know. It was, it was the challenge, I guess. I saw an immediate challenge and you know my head started going like okay we got to get and this is how i started i said we got to get we got to get that construction wrap secured to the building we got to fix those broken windows we got to plow the parking lot that's that was my first first moments at whitecap i hadn't even met anybody yet and i was already going through the planning process <laughs> So who owned the place, and ultimately, when did you come on board? Well, Dave and Evie Lundberg had owned the resort since 60 or 62, and um, I knew that there was a lot of financial strife here. I knew that there were shareholders. Um, I knew that they were not being told the truth about the place, and you could see you could see how bad it was. Um, I, quite honestly, it was so bad a blind man could have seen how bad it was. And, um, you know, I, I met with the realtors, um, after, after the whole tour, <laughs> people say it was a tour of three hours. And I said, no, no, it was four hours. And I said, um, 
after two hours, the, the one realtor got me on the front deck of the hotel and he said, you know, if you want to make an offer for $2 million today, he says, I could probably get it accepted. I said, you know, I want to see the golf course. And he said, well, you're not going to see that till spring. And I said, then I'll wait till spring. Well, you know, Vale's going to come along and buy this place. I said, this is not in Vale's wheelhouse. <laughs> far and away, not in their wheelhouse. And, you know, he claimed to know better. And, and you know, and so so I, I, I went through the whole place. I got to see the lodge. Uh, he, he, um, he introduced me to Dave Lundberg. And mm-hmm. Dave was very cordial. And, and, and Dave did not know anything about my background. And he said, well, he says, you know, I said, I'd like to buy it. I'd like to buy a lift ticket. I didn't bring any skis. I said, I'll buy a lift ticket. I'd like to ride the lift up and I'd like to walk down. And Dave refused to let me do that because he he thought I would get lost. And I'm like, pretty easy. You you start at the top and you walk to the bottom. (laughs) So he, he says, wait, he says, I got to, I have something special for you. And I, I didn't know him. So all of a sudden he pulls up in a parking lot in the old pre-North groomer. And he mm-hmm. says, come on, get in. He says, I bet you never been in one of these. And I said, <laughs> ah, you know, I have. <laughs> so he, uh, you know, so there's, there, there's like five or seven skiers out on the hill. He happens to find all of them and he's mm-hmm. chasing them with the groomer, beeping the horn <laughs> and he's cussing at them because they're in his way. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, this guy's, you know, a different breed. Right. And uh, he had these, I'll never forget. He had these khaki colored pants on and on his right thigh, there was all these spots. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, I, I, here's the owner of the resort. And he looks like, you know, he, he looks so disheveled and he's out here cussing at the people skiing. Cause he's on the groomer at like 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and uh, we pull up, he says, I want to show you someplace special. So we pull up to the wine hut. And back then, you know, there was no deck or anything there. It was it was pretty bad. And and he said, "Here's our famous wine hut." He said, "What do you what do you think of this place?" And I said, "You want a bulldozer?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "I think you should make use of that bulldozer." And he, <laughs> he said, "How dare you say that?" He says, "You know what? Today, he says that'll bring in a hundred or hundred and twenty five dollars." I said, "That's all the more reason to go get the bulldozer." <laughs> And I think he mumbled on he mumbled something under his breath, and I think it was "get out of the snowcat and walk back" is what I think what he said. So you know he brought me back, and uh, well, we went up to the top of the mountain, and then he took me down La Ciela and the cat. I think he was trying to scare me, uh, and 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 I said, you know, I'll I'll um you know I'll, I have some thinking to do, and I drove back to Chicago that night, and and uh, I knew all the way back that. I knew at that I, I knew the minute I drove into this parking lot that I'm supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of, you know, going through the whole sales process. I did that, tried doing that with him. And he he ultimately at the end of the day did not want to sell. And I would okay. I would drive up every Wednesday to meet with him during the summer and seeing how the golf course was coming along and 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 I would call his wife was very ill at the time. And I would call ahead and, and, and let Barb, who was his general manager, know that I was coming up Wednesday. I'd like to meet with him at 930. And that would give him enough time to go feed his wife lunch, you know. And I came up, I guess it was about a year. Well, I was I was coming up for a year and um, going through this whole thing and, you know, trying to figure it out and a business plan and all of that. And, and I was up here in October of 17. 
And he, I went up on the hill and Barb said, he's up at hole number three. And he would not talk to me. He just waved me away. And I, I put my dog back in the golf cart. I says, come on, we're done with this place. We're going home. I'm, I'm done with this guy. I'm, I'm just done. let him rot. I, I, I actually told my dog, I said, let him rot in hell. And I think my dog said, okay, you know what? And we got back <laughs> in the golf cart and went down and Barb said, well, that was fast. And I said, he doesn't want to talk to me. I says, I'm done with this place. Thanks for all your help. And she called him on the radio and said, you get down here. You know, David just drove six hours. So he came down in a golf cart and, and he pulled up and he says, come on, sit down and talk to me. So I sat in the golf cart with him and he still had those khaki pants on with the stains on them. But I forgot to say, when we pulled up to the wine hut, he beeped the horn on a snowcat and the bartender came out and gave him a glass of hot wine and he would hold that hot wine on his right thigh. And that's what the stains were. Oh my God. <laughs> and he still had those khaki pants on a year later. So, um, you know, he said, I said, what, what's up with you? And, and, you know, I said, you have all this debt here. You have, you know, your infrastructure is past the aging point. And, and he said, my problem is you have not made white cap a priority in your life. And I said, pardon me. I turned to him. And I remember sitting in the golf cart and, and I said, pardon me. He said, you have not made white cap a priority in your life. I, and I remember telling him this, I says, old man, I said, it doesn't have to be a priority in my life. I don't need this place. But now that you said that, I am coming after you. And I got up. My dog followed me to my truck. And I made the decision at that time that I was going to go visit the shareholders and let them know what was going on here. And as I got in my truck, he yelled. He says, if I have to chain myself to the doors, you will never get me out of here. And I said, the mistake you just made is you do not you do not know who you're dealing with. And I left here. And the next time I showed up was at the shareholders meeting in February of 18. What happened? Well, I went home. I, uh, I, my office manager at the landscape company knew that I was looking at this place. I said, I'm going to go visit the shareholders. I am going to let them know what's going on with their company. I'm going to let them know that they've been lied to. So we compiled all the documents that I had gathered, um, all the lien information from the IRS and the state of Wisconsin Department of Revenue. I had made copies of all the bank information to show them that this place was six and a half million dollars in debt. Mm -hmm. It was falling apart and that the bank was minutes from taking over. And they were not going to get any of their money back. And I took three weeks. I traveled through the Midwest from Chicago to Minneapolis, um, went to lunch with, took people to lunch, took people to dinner, visited them in their homes. My dog was with me every single step of the way. And uh, I told them what was going on. They said I presented them with my plan to renovate or reinvigorate Whitecap. And uh, I garnered 53% uh, of their proxies to walk into the shareholders meeting and take control of the, of the resort. So did you take an ownership stake at that time or were you general manager to start? Well, I, I uh, walked into the shareholders meeting on February 18th of 18 and the meeting started at two o'clock and uh, I had... They, they knew I was up to something because some of the shareholders called them, you know, and uh, we had sent up 
a proxy for 16 votes. And uh, we had sent that up a couple of weeks earlier and, and, and told them that if, if we received any more, we would get them up there before the meeting. Um, I had a legal team based out of Milwaukee that when I presented this idea of the corporate takeover to them, they thought I was crazy, um, but they stuck with me probably because they charged me a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, I was coming up to the meeting, um, met my attorneys uh, three miles from here. Uh, we put together a strategy, a final strategy. And then I met one of the shareholders there for the first time. And uh, I walked into the meeting. We sat down and Dave Lundberg welcomed me. He said, we have a special guest, uh, Dave Zubin, I think he called me. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's good to see you. And he says, okay, we have to elect a new board of directors. So he proposed the new board of directors, which was basically the, the board he had. And uh, his attorney was here and, and, and Fritz had told him, before they took the vote, he said, wait, you got to see if anybody has any proxies. And, and Dave Lundberg had some proxies and he was kind of smiling because, you know, he thought he had me. And and uh, and his attorney said, wait, is there any more? And I said, well, hold on a second. And my attorneys were sitting on each side of me and, and Dan, the lead attorney, was on my left side. And he bumped my elbow and he says, all right, let's go. So I said, wait. I have some proxies and we started reading them off and, and, uh, they knew then at that point that it, it equated to about 53% of the votes. So I voted down his board, uh, and he, I'll never forget, uh, the old guy plopped down in his chair though. The color went from his face and he turned to his attorney and says, what do I do now? And Fritz told him, he says, well, somebody's got to nominate a board. And I said, I have a board to nominate. And of course they voted against my board, but, uh, we, we got through a roll call vote of half of my proxies and he's old Dave threw his hands up. He said, what's the sense? He says, we know what just happened. And, and by two 20 in the afternoon, I had my, my hands around the place. So I sat back till the end of that season. Uh, they had been going, the state had come up and locked down the triple chair and the long chair because of safety mm. concerns. They had, they had a couple deropements and they, there was three or four chairs stripped off of each cable because uh, the safety systems had been jumped around. And so the state came up and locked down the, the lifts and uh, they were that, that day of the meeting, I met with the person that Dave had hired, old Dave had hired to oversee the, the uh, corrections on the long chair. They were gonna do a load test the next morning and if it passed a load test, it was good to go. And um, we were sitting in the old white cap restaurant and, and I met with Larry and Dave. And I said, if, if it doesn't pass a load test tomorrow, I says, we're done for the season. And Dave, old Dave kind of took offense to that. And I says, no, we're done. I said, that's the end of it. We got, we got to get on with work. And it, the, the chair passed load. We figured we'd go for another two weeks till the end of February. And we went till the end of March with the ski season. And, uh, I, 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 I let the staff know a week before that, you know, this, this will be the last week of the season. And, uh, so then I, I had to, you know, the first, the first, uh, objective was to deal away the six and a half million dollars of debt. So I went to the bank, um, which was about an hour from here. 
and they really didn't want to talk to me and they thought I was full of hooey and everything. You know, I got called some names. Uh, it was a good, you, you know, Dave, old Dave had been dealing with the bank for 45 years and it was a good old boys club, you know. But I held a couple cards in my pocket, one of which was there was an SBA loan here that he had taken out for a million dollars and it hadn't been paid on in seven or eight years. And the bank was reporting it in good standing on a quarterly basis. Hmm. So I had that card in my pocket. So in June, June 25th of 19, it was June, no, I'm sorry, June 25th of 18, I went to the bank unannounced. I took two of my board of directors there. I said, come on, we're going to Iron River. I, I got to get this over with. So I made them an offer uh, for, for less than pennies on the dollar. They told me I was crazy. Um, I said, you have 24 hours to, to give me an answer. And I, I had a attorney's card who represented the SBA in my pocket and I pulled it out and I gave it to the president of the bank. I said, do you know who this is? And he said, yeah, he said, that's, that's a, she's an attorney for the SBA. I mm -hmm. said, if this goes wrong, I says, they will be informed in, in 23 hours and 59 minutes. Now <laughs> I remember telling them that, that you've been reporting this loan is in good standing and it hasn't been. So I left, uh, I got, to Ashland, which was an hour, well, halfway between here and, and Iron River. And my phone rang, it was 4.30. And I heard uh, Willard, who was the president of the bank, he said, is this David? I said, yeah. He said, we'll take your offer. He hung up the phone on me. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I picked up the phone. I I called my wife and 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 she had been dealing with cancer and we knew the end was mm. getting close. And I, I left a message. I said, hey, the bank just said yes. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And uh, so what ended up happening at the bank is uh, we got all the paper from the bank, all the notes, all the personal guarantees. There was a forbearance agreement in place that if, the, if, if Dave Lundberg didn't perform, that the bank could come in and put the place in foreclosure. Hmm. So um, I opted to... Uh, we put together a strategy. I opted to put the put the old company into foreclosure to do away with a lot of the debt. I mean, there was liens all over the place. I notified the shareholders that, you know, the money that they had personally lent Dave was was not coming back to them. It was it was gone. You know, I mean, that was a hard pill to swallow for a lot of them. And uh, so we, we wiped out the debt, and um, I'll, I'll never forget that day. It was it was a great day at four thirty and. The next morning, I um, I met with the maintenance staff with our with our mountain staff out at the old shop, and I let them know that I came to an agreement with the bank, and um, we we're going to keep on moving forward. And just then, my phone had pinged. It was seven thirty in the morning on the twenty sixth, and I looked at my phone, and it was my wife's. My wife had left the voice message, and so I. I dialed my voice messages because I thought it was kind of surprising that she actually called me back and I got the voice message and, and it was one of my sister-in-laws. They called at 5.30 the night before and said that uh, my wife had just passed away. Oh, man. And uh, I said, you know, what time? And she said it was, it was at 5.30 that she passed away. And she said, we, we played your message for her that the bank said yes and <clears throat> just a few minutes after that, then she passed away. So, but um, 
we, uh, I had seen my wife two weeks prior. I was down there and I was prepared to stay down there with her. And she told me I had to get back up here because you can't trust that old man. She said, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I'll never forget the, you know, I, uh, my dog and I were there and, and, uh, and I, you know, I gave my wife a hug and a kiss and, and she said, you know, uh, this will be the last time. And, um, the last words were, I promise to make it snow in abundance, white cat. And, um, if you knew her, she meant June and July. <laughs> um, but I, I, uh, you know, especially with everything that happened this summer, I'm sure that this snow year has something to do with her. And, uh, you know, so we continue on. I mean, I, um, you know, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah, David, I don't even know what to say. That's that's such a powerful story on so many levels. And it's it's more than any one person can be expected to deal with. You know, you're you're taking on this huge challenge, you know, as parts of your life are falling apart and you lose the person central to it. How, how did you gather the strength to continue on and focus on the mission that was ahead of you, which was bringing White Cat back? It sounded like the place was a mess. It yeah. sounded like you had a lot of debris in your personal life that just would weigh on anyone. So, so how did you do it? How did you move things forward from that moment in 2018, that really crazy week where all this stuff happened? How did you move on? How did you draw the strength to do that? You know, I was staying out at the maintenance shop. I got that voice message. My mountain manager, Mark, who I, I think you met when you were here, he was standing next yeah. to me and, and, uh, I listened to the message and I looked at him and he said, what's up? I said, my wife passed away yesterday and she did not want me. She made it very clear to me when I last saw her that, you know, she wanted me to get back up here. She didn't trust the old guy. And, <laughs> and we had made arrangements and she said, I do not want you coming back here when, when it's time. She said, you have to stay there. And we had made plans and we were at peace. So Mark told me, he said, well, he said, just tell me what you want done the next couple of days, whatever time you need. And I says, hell no. I said, let's go. We got a job to do. And I walked into the shop and, uh, you know, I told the guys, I said, let's go. And um, I, one of the first things I asked them to do was we had a room in the hotel that had all these old air conditioners in it. The old guy was a hoarder. Mm -hmm. And I said, they said, well, how do you want us to get him out of there? I said, take the white pickup truck and go get him. And they looked at me and I said, what? They said, no, no, we can't, we can't drive anything. We're not allowed to drive. He said, it's a different day, you know, get in the truck, let's go to work. And, and, um, we, we set about that first summer rebuilding our main lift because the lift wouldn't run anymore. The, the bull wheel bearings were bad. The, the terminal was tilted seven degrees to the north and old mm. Dave had taken the excavator and to keep the lift running, he, he pushed the number one tower seven degrees to the north to make the terminal. <laughs> it was just, oh yeah. And, uh, you know, so we rebuilt the main lift. We set about rebuilding the main lodge cause it was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. We, 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 we built out two new restaurants, big brand new commercial kitchen, brand new bar, brand new rental shop, all brand new skis, new ticketing system. And we spent the summer doing that. 
we load tested the lift after all the work. We load tested the lift two days before Christmas. We open up on Christmas Day. The lodge had been open up for a week prior already, and we were packed. The local people loved the place. We were busy every single night. We opened up for the ski season, and it was great. I mean, here I was. I had a great staff. They were all behind me. Um, we were on our way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and to think where we came from six months prior, you know, when, and it, when it was, we can't drive anything, we're not allowed to, to, they didn't even own a wheelbarrow here. <laughs> and I mean, the maintenance shop over there, which is, which is located by the triple lift was only big enough to get the snowcat in. There was no heat. The break room had a dirt floor. We moved our maintenance shop into our big green building here. And to think of where we came in six months was just unbelievable. Everybody was so pumped and stoked. I mean, it was, it was incredible what was going on. The future, you know, I always say that, you know, yesterday was a good day at Whitecap. Today will be better than yesterday, but tomorrow's going to be better than today. And that's the mantra we took. And there was some, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that it was drama-free because there was some people who had been working here for years. When I took over at the meeting, there was 11 employees here. It takes 15 wow. people to run the lifts. And there were lift operators running in to make hamburgers. And they, I think they had like 24 pairs of rental skis. And uh, it, it was a great time. The whole, you know, I was taken from things I learned at, at Elk, things I learned at Mount Tom, things I learned at, um, things I learned at Magic. And, and, and everything came to a culmination here. And we were going at it. And some of the staff didn't like me. But you know what? They, they all worked. They all worked. You know, it, you called Magic the Wild West, but in comparison, Wildcap sound or Whitecap sounded like uh, like almost anarchy. And you told me a story while I was out there about some of the tenants around the property and their entitlement when you took over. And there was a whole other layer. So what can you tell us about that whole side of it? Yeah, that you know, that's pretty interesting because all of a sudden, you know, as much all the due diligence I did was nothing in and and i thought i did an extensive amount of due diligence and i did to a point but it was it did not capture everything here that i could not see and i met with a lot of the property owners and on the face to me they were all behind me and everything but there was a lot of entitlement here you know there was there was food being taken from the kitchen there was liquor being taken from the bar. There was things disappearing from the shop. If they wanted to plow their driveway, they came and got the skids through the bulldozer. They just helped themselves to everything. Mm. And and it was horrible. And I'll never forget the, you know, when I that that summer, um uh Dave, Dave's wife passed away two weeks before my wife did. Mm. So Dave and I kind of went through that together a little bit. And then Dave became ill. And uh he he went to a nursing home, but he wanted to return here. He wanted he he had lung cancer, and he wanted to return here and spend his his final days at Whitecap. And I I would go every Friday to the nursing home to visit with him. And uh, so he called one day 
And uh, Barb, who was his general manager, she stayed on to help with the transition. And she told me, Dave would like to see you and Fritz, his attorney. So we went to the nursing home and he wanted to come back here to live. And I said, absolutely no. Well, I caved and I said, okay, but there's things you can't do. I don't want you driving a bulldozer. The bulldozer was like his little baby. And, and mm -hmm. I don't want you in a golf cart, you know, because you're ill. And so he agreed to all of that. And, uh, you know, he asked if he could have his car. I said, well, I, I'm not going to keep that from you. And he came back and he wasn't back here 10 minutes. And I got a call that he was on the bulldozer. You know, <laughs> But anyway, so he took a property owner. The property owner took the skid steer and he took the bulldozer. And they're going to go work on this guy's driveway. And I caught him on the main. I said, no, you can't do that. And the property owner told me, well, we do this all the time. Yeah, well, and I remember telling him, there's a new sheriff in town now. Put it back. Mm -hmm. And... And they did. And there was there was a lot of that entitlement. There was a lot of animosity that was created because all of that came to a stop. But I had to tell them that, you know, it, it's a business and it's going to be run as such. And, you know, I still have issues to this day, but far less than I had then. So you have some good momentum. You do a lot of work in the lodge. You get some rental gear in there. Then what happens? January 2019. Well, January 18th. I don't know what happened on January 20th. Oh, yeah, 2018. January 18th, 2018. Uh, we are selling a lot of tickets. I had a run to town to the bank in the afternoon. I get back here at uh, a couple minutes after 4 o'clock. I walk into the lodge. I have my, my two-way with me, and I hear we have to evacuate the building. So I called my mountain manager on the radio. I says, what's going on? He said, there's smoke upstairs. So I said, meet me up there. Let's go take a look. We went upstairs and there's smoke coming out of the ceiling. Mark and I climbed up there and it was a very, very limited space because there had been so many additions and old roofs up there. And we could see it glowing far down this, this space we were in. I said, oh, my God, there's a fire. So, you know, I said, hand me a couple extinguishers and, and you know, you get the extinguishers in there. And, and all the meanwhile, they're evacuating the building and we're just getting ready to launch our fish fry. The place was packed with people. The lifts had just closed. Um, we, we were busy and uh, we're trying to put this out. And, uh, to you know, you get it. You'd blow the fire extinguishers in there and, and the glow would disappear and you think, okay, we got it. And then it would reignite, I guess, for lack of better words. So there was a volunteer fireman from, I think it was from Milwaukee. He was here skiing. He was up there with Mark and I. Mark crawled up there to look. He says, we got to get out of here. I said, let's, I said, I got to get to the window, get some fresh air. We looked out the window and there was just black smoke rolling out of the eaves of the building. And, you know, there was old rubber roofs up there and they caught fire and, and, and he said, come on, let's go. So we got down to the parking lot and, um, the, the fire hadn't come through the roof yet, but there was just smoke billowing out all over the place. And, uh, that started a very eventful evening for us here at Whitecap. So the emergency response was actually pretty massive. And, and I want to underscore this, you're in a pretty remote area. So, Talk about that emergency response and who showed up and, and how that night went for everybody. 
You know, the call went out uh, at 418. Uh, the first fire department to respond was Anderson, which is three, four miles from here. They showed up, and by that time, yet the fire had not come through the, the roof yet. Um, it was about five degrees above zero. Uh, it was very windy. We started, my mountain manager was with me, and Les, who was in charge of our rental department, was there, and he was a volunteer firefighter on that fire department. We started pulling hoses off the truck, and, you know, they had trouble getting the pumper operating, and I remember that the three of us, Mark and Les and myself, were, were yelling at, at, at the firemen to, let's go, get it going, get it going, get it going. And I said, somebody's got to call Hurley, meaning the fire department in Hurley. Well, mm -hmm. calls had been going out for assistance. We ended up with eight or nine fire departments here. The Red Cross was here. The DNR sent equipment. The state of Wisconsin sent equipment. The county sent equipment. And, you know, when it came through the, when it came through the roof, we knew it was, it was done. I mean, we just knew that that was going to be the end of the place. And then it was, you know, we had been trying to pull the hoses. We were holding hoses. We were fighting a fire. Staff was coming up. We're trying to give them direction on, on things to do to help keep. By now, there was crowds. I mean, I remember turning around at one point and seeing people in the parking lot, um, you know, with their phones and everything. And I thought, oh, my God, where did they all come from? And fire trucks are rolling in. We had to cut a hole in the lake so they could access water. They were setting up temporary, these temporary pools that they could fill in the parking lot. They were running three miles down the road to a hydrant. They were running to Upson to a hydrant. The DNR sent tankers. The state had tankers here. We're trying to get these tankers full. Hurley showed up with their big ladder truck, and it would take 20 minutes to fill one of these pools so that the big ladder truck, the aerial ladder from Hurley, could put the suction tube in there and, and start shooting water. The, the bad part was it took Hurley five minutes to empty out the to empty out the the portable pool, you know, and there were just firemen all over the place. There was ambulances all over the place. The power company showed up. Our propane providers showed up. I mean, everybody was there to help. It was just unbelievable what was going on. And, and, uh, there came a time that, um, the round building that you saw here is the only surviving part of the building that when we decided we had to save at least that part of the building. So one of the firemen told us to open up doors and close these doors, open up these doors to vent the place and, and drive the smoke and the fire back into the lodge. Cause we didn't want that curve buildings attached to the condos and we didn't want the condos to start, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember standing at the entrance to that, to the building where now the ski patrol is this year. And uh, my office manager and bookkeeper, well, first of all, when we were, when we were pulling the hoses off the truck and Mark, my mountain manager was there and Les was there and Mark turned to me and he said, what are we going to do? And I said, <laughs> um, we're going to open up tomorrow. Wow. And he said, how was that going to happen? And I said, come back in 10 minutes. I'll have a plan. <laughs> and, uh, 
just then the power company cut the power to the whole resort for safety reasons. And I'm like, oh, crap. And uh, I, I walked across the, the little parking lot there and, and I was standing there and I wanted to be sure that I it was important to portray um, strength to the staff. And I, I remember bending over and putting my hands on my knees and my office manager and bookkeeper walked up and they put their arms around me and I said, oh, crap, I got to I got to stand tall here for everybody. And uh, so I um, as the fire was being fought, you know, calls started coming in. I, it, was, it made the national news. My little brother wow. who lives in Dixon yet to this day, he's a special needs kid and he, he just turned 60 years old. He called me on my cell phone and. I wasn't taking calls. I didn't know who it was. And I saw Tommy called, you know, and I said, hey, bud, what's going on? He said, you better get to your ski lodge. It's on fire. <laughs> oh, no. I'm like, how do you know this? He said, it's on the Rockford, Illinois news. Unbelievable. And I said, Tom, I'll call you back, you know. And, uh, and uh, but I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew we had to open up the next morning. So then it was, oh, crap we got to go back in to the offices and we got to grab the safe. We got to grab a computer. We got to grab a ticket printer. We couldn't get to the ticket printers because that, that part of the building was engulfed, but we had extra tickets we grabbed uh, and we grabbed a safe and a computer and a phone and a credit card machine. And uh, you know, they said, well, what are we going to do with this stuff? I said, we got to set up offices in the hotel mm -hmm. and Immediately, employees stepped up and, you know, the hotel was never run from the hotel. Our front desk was a closet at the time. Mm. We didn't have a kitchen. We didn't have a restaurant, nothing in there. And uh, we we found, uh, you know, we we I, I think you, you were up in my office and, and I moved into here that night to set up shop. And uh, and uh, we, we took a couple other hotel rooms we talked to the telephone company about getting lines changed. So we had phone access here. Uh, I had a meeting with the power company, Mark and I did, and they said, we'll have your power up by sometime tomorrow afternoon. I said, that's not good enough. I said, we're going to open up at eight 30. And they looked at me kind of cross-eyed, you know, <laughs> and they still do to this day. And, uh, and they said, okay. And I, I had to go, I had to run to the hospital and would, cause I inhaled a bunch of smoke and, and uh, the, the paramedics said, you should go. And they wanted to take me. And I said, no, I said, I'll drive myself. And I purposely took my dog with me mm -hmm. because I knew they wouldn't let me keep the dog at the hospital. So that was an excuse to come home. You know, <laughs> so I walked into the emergency room at the hospital and, and the nurse said, I have smoke all over my face and everything. And the nurse said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I, I was helping fight a fire and I sucked in some smoke. She said, Oh my God, did you hear? She said, white caps on fire. <laughs> and I, I had, I had my sweater on and had the white cap logo on. I had a baseball cap and I pointed at it. She said, Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> they wanted to keep me there. And I said, no. And they gave me some, some stuff to breathe in for a while. And I, they wanted me to stay. And I said, no, my dog's out in my truck. I got to go. And I walked out of the hospital and came back here and, um, uh, and got an update on what was going on. And, um, uh, Mark had had, you know, kind of uh, shown everybody what we needed to do. And we continued on through the night. Um, you know, the building was obviously a loss, but but we continued on through the night. People were calling all night long. 
once the phones got restored, people were calling the resort. What can we do? What can we do? And we said, we appreciate your help. Uh, we're dealing with this the best we can. If you want to support us, um, please come out and ski in the morning. And uh, um, the, the guy... <clears throat> the guy at the BP station in town showed up that night with a freezer with frozen pizzas and a couple of those little tombstone pizza ovens. Mm -hmm. uh, people were showing up with, um, with cookies and coffee and, wow. and somebody, somebody showed up uh, with a electric stove so we could cook. We had, so we had a means of cooking the next day. And, um, uh, you know, we, we, we just set up shop and uh, seven o'clock rolled around in the morning and I had a staff meeting in the glass room here in the hotel and everybody was, the place smelled the smoke because everybody was just full of smoke in their clothes. And, and I said, you know, lifts open up at 8.30. Um, we're going to continue on and we'll make this work. And I thanked everybody for their help. And that was that was bawling like a baby and um people just started showing up to buy tickets and it was crazy it was crazy and newspapers were calling tv stations were here and you know it was just uh, i i want to use the word circus but not in a bad way um it was unbelievable and when the when daylight came up you know, there was a couple fire departments here yet. The building was just a smoldering hulk. And there was ashes over the whole 400 acres of the resort. Mm -hmm. And I remember that night, I I thought, you know, God, please don't let the wine hut go. You know, we had to have a place to sell liquor. And uh, and uh, we, we loaded lifts at 830. So you kept it moving. I mean, four years on, David, and, and it's it's amazing because life is a grind and a business is a grind. But when you really step back and you get some perspective, often it comes down to the trajectory comes down to just a few moments. Four years on, how important was it that Whitecap opened the morning after the fire when the lodge is still smoldering? It meant everything. It was it was a defining i believe it was a def the defining moment of not only that event and it was a defining moment for that staff um you have to remember that night we had 88 people on the payroll wow. um it was a defining moment for them it it will forever be the defining moment of the resort and the resort's history it was very important. It was the most important thing that we continue on that next morning, not wait a day or two or a week. We had to open. We had to open that day um, to let everybody know that, you know, it was a good day at Whitecap, the day, the day of the fire. It was a better day the next day, and Sunday will be even even better than that Saturday. And you know, Whitecaps strong—that's what we are. It sounds like it was a crucial moment, not just for the history of the resort, but 
but maybe in your life, David, I mean, how much of a defining moment was this for you? It, it sounded as though you were drawn back with a mission-like importance to the ski industry. I mean, how crucial was this just to show yourself that you were going to make this work? Well, it was, it was, it was probably the biggest decision of my life. Um, and I've made a lot of big ones in my life. Um, but I, I think that I, I could have walked away and, and, and people would have said he tried, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but the odds just became too great. Um, but it was more important to me to show everybody that no matter what is thrown at you, and maybe it was a life lesson I was trying to teach. No matter what is thrown at you, if you believe and you have the desire and you know it's the right thing to do, you have to keep on forging ahead. You know, my grandpa, three days before he died, he was at my high school graduation and, and he came to me and my parents had this party at the house for me. I was the first grandson and it was a big deal. And he said, come on, take a walk around the yard with your grandpa and and I thought, oh, I'm going to get a big check, you know. And uh, <laughs> he said, I, I, I have something I want you to have for the rest of your life. And I thought, wow, it must really be a big check, you know. <laughs> uh, and he said, he told me three things. He says, I'm going to tell you three things I want you to remember. He says, number one, 10 dimes make a dollar. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, we're headed down the money road here. You know? <laughs> and then he said, Number two is if you can't laugh every day, you might as well just lay down and die. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, so now I'm not getting the money. It was my thought, you know. And the third thing, I can't remember what he told me, but I I carry those two things with me every day. And, and especially the 10 dimes make a dollar thing because to me at the time, and he told me, he says, and I'm not talking, when he told me that, he says, I'm not talking about money. And he said, at some point in your life, you will you will know what I meant. And what I think he meant was, you know, if you have a goal in mind, keep on trying to get that, to attain that goal. You know, if you want to save a dollar, save 10 dimes. And if, if you believe, you know, in the thing here, white cap, then you have to overcome everything that's thrown at you. And, and, and I've done that all my life. You know, I've been throwing curveballs a lot and I just, if I know it's the right thing, I keep my nose down and keep on going. And that's that's what we had to do here. It was very important to do that. And, and, and did he have a check for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. All right. He didn't, but, you know, that's okay. I, I, uh, I learned a lot from both my, my, my grandpas and my grandmas and, and my mom and dad. And, and, you know, so I, that's more than, you know, at the time, sure, it would have been great to have a check. Um, but, you know, what I've learned from them when I worked for them and, and, and all of that, you, you can't buy that. And I believe that all of that wisdom, all of those times I was told no or, or do this or do that, that it has led me to this absolute minute right here today, you know, being white cap. I mean, it every... You know, had I not gone to Plumtree, I would have never been here. The whole thing, it, you know, if you make a left-hand turn here, you're going a different way. And I just, 
everything I've done in my life, everything I've done in my life has led me, I believe, to this absolute place right here. I knew it when I pulled into the parking lot. So four years ago, the lodge burns down. It would have been pretty easy to give up, but you kept going and you just chip away at it. So let's talk first about the lodge. You know, Mm -hmm. four years on, where are you with the lodge? Are you still trying to rebuild? Do you have any sense of what you want to do with a new lodge and when you might see it? Yep. Um, Those are all great questions. As a matter of fact, um, you know, we had some obstacles to overcome this summer. Uh, We thought that resort was headed in a different direction and and the investor backed out. I'll be quite frank. I don't think he had the 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 I don't think he had the appetite or the wherewithal to do things here and he mm-hmm. bailed on us in August so mm-hmm. here we are with a hotel that was a lot of the rooms were under renovation he had closed the, wanted the golf course closed he wanted the pool closed didn't have any attention opening up the pool this winter closed the restaurant I think I don't think he had any intention of opening up the ski area at all I wow. I, I that's what I think so early on Early on in the summer, you know, we started, he's going to build this grand lodge and, you know, he had all these plans drawn up and, and, and I said, we could do the excavating. We have the equipment, we have the expertise. So we started digging and he was here and, and all of a sudden after three days of digging, he said, fill the hole back in. And Hmm. I, I had been telling my mountain manager for weeks before that something's up with this guy. Something's not right. People aren't getting paid. And, you know, so finally, I started putting my foot down in August. And then all of a sudden, you know, when he met with some resistance, he bailed. Okay. And, and you know, at that, that was another defining moment, not as great as deciding to open the morning after the fire. But I said, <laughs> all right, I'm going to take charge of this. And because I was going to stick around for a year and then I was going to retire, quite mm-hmm. honestly, you know. And I thought there is no way that I am letting these people lose their jobs. I'm not going to let this place fall apart. We've come so far. So I talked to my attorneys. I said, get this deal done. And, um, you know, so I, I got rid of everybody that was involved with me here. And uh, it's me 100%. And I have engaged an architectural firm out of Wisconsin Rapids. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's a very avid whitecap skier. He has a house here. Uh, he is actually bringing up his staff this Saturday to go through the resort and get a feel for it. We, we had a meeting yesterday for three hours. Um, the plan right now, nothing's cast in stone yet. And well, I should say, well, I've, I've engaged the architectural firm. I've engaged, uh, a law firm out of Appleton and Chicago to, they specialize in, in, in the financing process. Um, I've been speaking with a snowmaking company, uh, cause we desperately need snowmaking here. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in, I'm in very, very, uh, uh, what is it? I want to say, uh, very preliminary discussions with a lift company. Um, but the thought process right now is that, you know, we've stuck a lot of money into the hotel, renovating it. It was supposed to come. I, I had it figured that it would be down by now, but due to the fire that changed things. And I, the, the process is now that we're looking at this, we've pretty well decided that this would be a great location for a base lodge. You know, the infrastructure is here. Uh, so we are the, one of the first tasks the architectural firm 
has been given is to uh, design this building to serve as more of a base lodge mm-hmm. slash hotel. Okay. And that would include uh, most likely taking out the pool and the hot tub and the glass room and building that out into a restaurant, bar, and event space so we can mm-hmm. have, you know, music and whatnot. And uh, uh, that would be the first step. Um, and then, you know, we're looking at, we had great discussions yesterday with the architect and the realtor about, uh, uh, we have a lot of real estate for sale. We're getting ready to open up a new subdivision up on the hill. That would be all skiing and ski out. Nice. Uh, so that's exciting. We have had a lot of inquiries about, uh, people are more interested in purchasing, you know, uh, a home already built instead of going through the whole building process. So we are uh, trying to figure out that whole process. And if we, we have a couple designs for some um, ski homes to go on the lot so that we could sell. So the realtors all cranked up about that. Um, And uh, you know, nothing, there will be a lot of improvements that are made this year. Last fall, we well, last summer, we purchased a new magic carpet to go in place of the rope toe. Mm-hmm. Um, the magic carpet is here. It was supposed to arrive in September. We got it a week after Thanksgiving and, and, and we didn't get our, our controls for that until three weeks after that. So <laughs> the new magic carpet is sitting up at the top of the bunny hill under tarps, ready to be built this spring. Uh, I purchased a, a larger snowmaking pump, uh, last fall and we tried like hell to get that installed and and we just couldn't because all our work was basically put on standstill until the investor bailed in August. Mm. I mean, the golf course hadn't even been mowed all summer. Wow. So the first thing I did when I got the call was I sent the mowers up on the golf course and they were all happy. <laughs> um, so we're, we're heading towards opening up the golf course, um, you know, and, and, and we'll improve the snowmaking this year, not to the degree that I want, but it will be, you know, it's some things have to go in baby steps with everything we have to do. The Davos building that's located uh, between two runs here down in the base area, we're going to, that's slated for renovations to begin in the spring so that we can cater to groups, um, ATV groups and ski groups. There's been a lot of interest from both of those, those groups um, that want to come and stay here. And in, and, uh, you know, we're, we're gaining traction. We are absolutely gaining traction. So let's talk about the mountain here for a little bit, David, you have a really interesting lift fleet. You mentioned that you had had preliminary discussions with a lift manufacturer, just surveying the lift fleet. What are your priorities for upgrades, improvements? Are you talking about adding a new lift or are there lifts you'd like to replace and give us your, your take on the fleet as a whole and where you would like it to be eventually? You know, the fleet as a whole is in, other than the days that they were brand new, they are probably in the best shape that they have been since the day they were installed. Hmm. Um, There was, we have sunk a lot of money into maintenance on the lifts. Like I said earlier, we completely rebuilt the main lift. That's, you know, that's the most important lift here. Um, That gets you up, you know, that gets you to, to the top of White Cat Mountain. Um, so, the, you know, when I first came here, I was invited to speak to a lot of groups. And, and always one of the first two questions after I got done speaking was, how safe are the lifts at White Cat? And, right. 
you know, they are absolutely safe. Obviously, they get inspected every year. We've continued to upgrade. The inspectors are just in awe every year when they come out to see mm-hmm. the improvements we've made. So we're very happy about that. Looking towards the future, it would be nice to have a, a lift right out of our base area that that goes to the top of the mountain. So it's a one-hop ride instead of two right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would leave... Uh, basically what we're looking at is a terminal basically in front of the hotel here and it would skirt the fairway of nine, which would be skiers, right? And it would go up to the top. Um, we, we are talking about the long chair, which is kind of a a iconic piece here at white camp. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I've always thought that should be two lifts because, you know, if we lose the south side, we still have to hit, you know, it's still two more operators when that lift is running. Um, so talking about splitting that chair in two, eventually the SeaTech lift, which has been down for a number of years. Um, I had all the steel built three summers ago for that, that had to be replaced. The concrete's in the ground at the base terminal. That's been signed off by an engineer. Um, you know, we have to put a new haul rope on there, but I believe that that SeaTech lift, the top, you know, it's a top drive, and that that terminal has to be, that used to unload on top of the mountain house, the old structure that was up there. And and we believe that that terminal, the unload terminal has to be moved down to the last tower on that lift uh, to make way. We would like to have some type of building up there. Mm-hmm. Um not, nothing extravagant, no hotel or anything, but a building that skiers can go to and get a bite to eat uh, and a drink. And then that would also serve the golf course in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So that that's, you know, that's some of the things we're looking at. And um, I, you know, I've talked to the attorneys and uh, the architect and the realtor, and I said it would be nice in a couple months to kind of make a broad stroke announcement as far as, you know, some kind of rough master plan. So people see that, that here's what's coming, um, you know, um, and, and, and here's where the future white cap is headed. We do not, you know, it's not my intention to make this a veil or an Aspen or anything like that. I think it's very important that it stays affordable for the local people mm-hmm. uh, and, and, the, and the skiing public in general. I, you know, I, I think, Pricing structures getting a lot of getting out of hand at a lot of places, and I wanna I wanna remain affordable to everybody. I do not want to lose the soul of Whitecap. Um, I I want to you know I want to make it available to the masses, so to speak. Um, I I you know and it, it that that's the way it's going to grow. Let's focus just for a moment here, David, on that long chair, which is on the trail map as North Pole. South mm-hmm. Pole double chairs, and the current trail map doesn't show the connection between them, but it is one long contiguous hall chairlift but dating to 1971. It mm-hmm. is just a super interesting machine. It goes, I don't know, 150, 200 feet. You probably have the number over that meadow there in between the, the, the trails, but skiers are not allowed to ride in between. I believe at one point in Whitecaps history they were, but correct me if I'm wrong. Just tell us about this machine, uh, what makes it so unique, and then why can't we ride over the meadow? Yep. Uh, those are all great questions. You know, that lift is just about a mile long. It spans mm-hmm. two peaks here at the resort. It serves the north side of the resort, which is uh, it, it is a great variety of terrain over there for families. A lot of families hang out there. Um, and it serves the south side, which is where all our 
double black runs are. And, you know, which is kind of a mainstay of Whitecap that, that we'd like to call that legendary south side over there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the chair is about a mile long. At the valley there, it's, uh, it's, it's approximately 125 feet uh, from the valley floor to, to the haul rope. Uh, so that's, you know, that's something in itself for the Midwest. Um, yeah. And, you know, I know, so when you leave the, when you leave the North pole, you unload at Raven's roost up on top. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, from Raven's roost, it goes across the Valley. And when you come up from the South side, from the South pole, you unload at Eagle's nest. And the reason we don't let people ride across the Valley is, just for the sake of evacuation purposes, God forbid, if something would happen and we had to physically evacuate that chair, we have the equipment and the training to do that. But, you know, if that chair is full and we're evacuating from 125 feet, that's a whole different set of circumstances than being 30 or 40 feet up in the air. Right. And we have the launchers and all the equipment to to do that, but it's just a safety concern. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just do not want to be faced with, with that dilemma. It, it would take a very long time to evacuate that part of that chair. And, you know, and that's at the risk of other people on the rest of the lift. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to put anybody in that position, um, the staff or the guests, and it's just easier to unload at Raven's Roost or Eagle's Nest and and just let the valley be. So it'll be interesting to see how that lift evolves over time. Let's get back to the affordability bit for a moment, David. I noticed that when you put your season passes on sale for Whitecap this year, they're set at $295, just a phenomenal deal. So curious, you know, in last year, according to my records, and and these may be incorrect, but it debuted at four ninety five. So quite a price drop there. Just curious why you made that move, and then also just setting the context here, you are pretty close to Big Powderhorn in Michigan, and also Snow River, which obviously has introduced a new competition now that it's part of Midwest Family Ski Resorts with sister benefits at Granite Peak and Lutzen. So just take us through your decision to drop that season pass price and and kind of set within the context of your competitors there nearby in Michigan. Yep. You know, um, that's a great question. You know, last year when a new investor was here, they kept on stalling off introducing the season's pass, which was another flag to me that he had no intention of opening up the resort. Right. So we missed that whole, you know, March sale period to whenever. Mm-hmm. So when we launched our passes last fall, we started at the point of where we were in the past with our pass prices. You know, we started at that four ninety five because that's what they would have been at that time had we started in the spring. And then you know, there's cutoff times. So yeah, this year I I I was a little hesitant to go to the two ninety five, but you know, I knew that with our pass partners we were going to be seeing more skiers here this year and i wanted to let people know that we're putting out a great product we want you to come here and ski and here's an opportunity now uh, you know that price that 295 is only good until the end of the ski season and it gets bumped up Mm -hmm. Uh, so that that was the thought process there was just to you know after everything we went through this past summer with the resort for the most part being closed and and with the questions that came up you know, about the ski season and what was going to happen, you know, 
it was just a way to make a statement, I guess you could say, that we're here, you know, come and see us, rediscover Whitecap. What's the response been like so far, David? Are you see, are your numbers good? <laughs> oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they are. <laughs> I And obviously, I won't disclose the number, but I think, you know, that statement makes you know, drives a point. <laughs> Based on the way you're, I can see you smiling through the microphone. I'm going to guess it's going pretty well. Now, Mount Bohemia, which is a few hours from you, obviously legendary ski area up in the UP and Lonnie Gleberman, the owner of Mount Bohemia and the founder of that place came on the Storm Skiing podcast about six months ago and just laid out the whole strategy. You made an interesting comment to me when I was up there skiing that you, when you forged that reciprocal agreement, so your pass holders get one day at Bohemia, Bohemia pass holders get one day at Whitecap, you said that has actually worked out really, really well for you. So tell us about the deal with Mount Bohemia and what the reaction has been like to that and how that's been good for Whitecap. It has been absolutely unbelievable. I would have never guessed that the redemptions would have been where they are. Hmm. Um, and again, I'm wearing that big smile. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I was a little hesitant at first, but I thought, you know, having another past partner, that would be a good thing. And I thought, I don't know how that's going to work because, you know, Bohemia is a different animal up there yep. than it is here. But, you know, and, and, and I've never met Lonnie. I have a lot of respect for him for what he's doing up there. Um, I just come from a different school, you know, yep. and, um, I, it, it has introduced white cap to <laughs> the masses basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very exciting. We just re-upped our agreement with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be a few changes for next season in that, um, you know, we're, we're going to, we didn't have any blackout dates this year, but we're going to, we're going to follow our blackout dates for next year. But mm-hmm. if you come from, from Mount Bohemia, and you come here and ski and you redeem, you know, for a ticket for the day, we're going to give you a redemption certificate for X amount of dollars off your next lift ticket when you come back to Whitecap. The other thing that's very surprising is with our pass sale going on, we've had a lot of Mount Bohemia pass holders purchase season's passes here. Mm. We take that as a very good sign. We're very, very excited about that. And, and, you know, we have, you know, we have some great glade areas and tree areas, whatever. And we're, we're going to, we're going to improve on that this summer to, to make it more conducive for those people to want to come back here. I mean, if, if you look at that, you take a $99 or $109 Bohemia pass and you combine it with a 295 white cap pass. I mean, you're set for the season. And then on top of that, you can also add on an indie pass. You are a first year Indy Allied Resort. How has that program worked out for you, David, where Indy Pass holders get a discount? They're eligible for discounted lift tickets at White Cap, half off during the week, 25% off on weekends and holidays, and your pass holders can add on an Indy Pass. So you're not a full member, but you're part of the Allied Resorts program. Your first year member, how has that worked out? Um, I... I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I would have thought it would have worked out a lot different than it actually has. Um, it just, it just doesn't seem to have the swagger that I thought it was going to have. Um, you know, by, and I mean, that's, you know, I don't know how else to put that. I'm, I'm, I, I guess maybe I'm a bit disappointed in a way. Um, but you know, that's, that's life. Not everything 
not everything works out to be what you think it's going to be. Would you be interested in joining the Indy Pass as a full partner? Um, I might be. Mm-hmm. I might be. Yeah, it, it's it would give you know I I think what you're up against, and I'm seeing this with some of the Allied partners, is because Indy Pass holders have so many full options on the pass. They can go to Powderhorn. They can go to Snow River now. They can go over to uh, uh, Duluth to uh, Spirit Mountain. They can go up to Lutz and they go down to Granite Peak. So they have to exhaust probably all their free days. I'm right. saying that in air quotes because they're, you know, you pay for the pass oh, before yeah. they're going to use those discount days. Do you think that has something to do with it? Yeah, I think it does. I, I, I think it does. And they do have a lot of choices. I, you know, when we started with past partners, you know, we, we had some smaller resorts on there or smaller ski hills on there. And, and I think that's important to, and, and we also had some bigger resorts, you know, Grand Targi, and they're still a past partner. Camp 10 down in Rhinelander is a past partner. Pine Mountain, uh, we just agreed on a past partnership for next season. So it's, nice. you know, one for one. Um, and I, I can't think of all of them now, but, you know, I, when, when we started looking at the, the past partners, I wanted to include more of the quote unquote smaller areas because I wanted, you know, I wanted people to know that there's a bigger place that's concerned about them and wants to give them an opportunity to ski at maybe a little bigger place after they have, uh, for lack of better words, outgrown their home hill, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I would still like to do that. And um, as a matter of fact, I, at one o'clock today, I have a call with our marketing company to discuss. And that's one of the things on the agenda is to discuss going after some of these smaller, smaller hills to include them. And I want, you know, I, I just want those, those skiers that are starting out to know that there's, there's a place that they can have an opportunity to come and ski at that's a little bigger, gives them a little more diverse terrain and kind of bring them into the fold, kind of like we do with our A-pass, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's important to to include, like you and I talked about, you know, a lot of the media is about these great big mega resorts. Yeah. And, and not, there's, you know, and I know there's not a lot of media about, you know, like we talked about, about places the size of Whitecap and whatnot, but then then it even gets less about the smaller areas. And, and, you know, I guess I have a place in my heart for those little areas because that's where I started right. out, you know, <laughs> and, I, and, and you never know who's going to come along through those places, you know? So it, it, it's kind of, I, I've always wanted to cater to those, those types of areas. All right, David, we just hit the two hour mark. So I will let you go after this final question. Mm-hmm. You leave us with this white cap, I've skied at hundreds of ski areas and, mm-hmm. and white cap is special. It's, I can't think of a better word, but I felt really enchanted by the place, just the way it's laid out, the way it's just these big meadows with these little tree islands. And then you have this really fierce terrain off the South pole lift, which I think is where your boho skiers are going and saying, oh, yeah. okay, this is legit. This feels like boho. So just t- tell us about white cap and what, from your point of view as a guy who's worked in the industry and has seen it all. What makes this place special? I mean, there's there's the terrain which I just described. There's this lake effect snow, which is just like magic and just comes off the lake, Lake Superior, and two miles away, it's a whole different world. And you're getting a couple feet of snow where there might be a dusting. So just tell us about what makes this place unique, 
what captivated you about it and what will captivate skiers about it if they make the journey up there, which they should. Yeah, I, I, I agree. They all should. Um, <laughs> you know, it's when I first sat down with you when you were here and I said, you know, I'm not saying this because of the position I hold here, but from that first minute I drove in the parking lot and stopped out there, I knew that there was something special here. And I hadn't, and all I saw was the broken windows and the construction ramp flapping in the breeze. Um, there, and, and I've heard that from a lot of people that there is truly something special here. I don't know what it is, but you know, and, and I said, I guess the wine hut embodies it the most is that this is where you will find the soul of skiing. Um, it's, uh, it is truly remarkable. I give Dave and Evie kudos for their vision. And, you know, I'll disagree with the way he went about accomplishing that vision, but <laughs> I give him kudos for his foresight and his thoughts about this. Um, and, and people need to come here and see that and and experience the mountain and there's just so much varied terrain there's so much you know on any given day you'll find three generations of a family skiing together here and that's what white cap is all about it's the family experience it's the memories and i get to share in those memories now because i've been brought into the fold of so many of those families and you know um I like to get out on the weekends and spend as much time as I can. If it's just standing up on top of the mountain, answering questions or meeting people at the wine hut. But I just, you know, I have never been anywhere. And that's Plumtree, Magic, Mount Tom, Elk Mountain, where people have just embraced me and thanked me and for continuing on and, and um, providing this place to them. And I'm just a steward for the time being. And at some point, Somebody else will have the responsibility of this place. Uh, God, God willing, I'm here for a long time, you know. Um, but it it is it's it's truly remarkable. I I have never experienced the 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 kindness, the generosity, the caring from people, and and I care about all of them. I it's it's funny that I'll be out on the hill and somebody from the ski lift will be calling my name, saying hello and. You know, we want you to know we're here. And I say, hey, I haven't seen you for so long. How are you? I have no idea who it is because they're in their steam guard. But, you know, it's just it's just a great place. The vibe is so cool. Um, You know, I, I and I, I agree with you. Everybody should experience this place. And as more people do, you know, there's more repeats that come back and back and back. David, you're giving white cap the future that it deserves. And I say this with all sincerity, I hit 11 ski areas on my five-day tour of the Midwest. Whitecap, far and away, was the one that stood out to me as the most unique, the most memorable, the one that I am putting a pin in that I am definitely going to return to at some point. Thank you so very much for sharing all your insight with us. I cannot wait to follow this story and I am cheering you on, David. I think you're doing great work up there at an amazing special place. And I wish you the best of luck for the rest of this winter and far into the future. So thank you so much for today. Well, thank you for your time. And I hope we get to talk again. That's David Jubin, owner and general manager of Whitecap, Wisconsin. I don't even know what to say other than go there. 
when I did my Midwestern road trip in February, I hit 11 ski areas in five days. Whitecap was my favorite. By a lot. It is a singular place and it belongs on any skiers checklist. Thank you so much for that, David. I'm going to go ahead and speak for all of us when I say this. That was incredible. I appreciate the candor. I appreciate the emotion. I have enormous respect for the struggle and for what you've already achieved at Whitecap despite everything you've been facing. I cannot wait to see what you make of the place. Thank you all so much for listening, especially if you made it all the way through. More pods on the way soon. Confirmed guests include the leaders of Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. Remember, the very best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.